Consider therefore the kindness and... Well, before we begin, let us speak with our Lord. Heavenly Father, we know that you speak to us through your word, but so often we are hard-hearted and stiff-necked and we do not want to listen. We pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning we will be able to hear with our ears and our hearts will be affected by what you have to say and that we'll grow in yourself and be pleasing and holy servants to you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin by asking, what do you use the word great for? What do you use that adjective for? We use it quite often. It's a very common adjective. And I I think of many things that I've seen that I would call great. Jill and I went on holidays. We've been on a holiday break and we went up to Cairns and we went on what they have there, the Sky Rail. They have these cable cars that take you over the, the mountain ranges there. And those mountains are pretty great. They're covered in trees and you can see they go on and on for ages and you say, they're pretty great mountains. We speak about land as being great but we also speak about buildings as being great. Whenever I look at that Sydney Tower in the city there and look at it uh, going right up there and I often wonder why it's not going to fall over on top of me at any moment. Uh, They're pretty great towers that we have in our city. But we also use the word great for people, don't we? We talk about people being great for many things. When we talk about academics, people like Einstein, he was great, he had a great mind, particularly when it comes to mathematics. He was a great man. But then we talk about athletes as being great, and I'm sure we're going to hear the word great more and more often in the next month uh, with the Olympics. We're going to be hearing that all these gold medalists, they're great at what they do. They're great at running really fast. Um, They can run a lot faster than I can. Uh, They are great. And then we talk about politicians often being great, or some of us wouldn't think that, but at least we recognise that they have great power. And that's why we get so frustrated with them at times, because they have more power than we do to effect change. And the only change that we can effect through them is by our votes when it comes to election time. And we often get really... uh, Uh, torn up with that but we recognise they do have great power and some of them we may consider great politicians. So we use that adjective great all the time but we also use it of God, don't we? That he is great and the Bible commonly speaks of God as being great and John read for us from Deuteronomy uh, this morning and uh, that had a text about the greatness of God but an example would be, uh, other examples are Psalm 95. Psalm 95 verse 3 says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. And then over to Psalm 96 verse 4 it says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. So the Bible is quite clear that God is a great God. But why is he a great God? Why is he great? And this is the question that I think Isaiah is trying to grapple with this morning and trying to tell the people of Israel and trying to tell God's people why God is so great. Why is he greater than anybody or anything? Why is he great? And so if you've got Isaiah, uh, if you've got your Bibles there, I encourage you to open them to Isaiah chapter 40 and the passage that we read, Isaiah 40 verse 12. And working through that passage, I've uh, 
pulled out 11 things that I can see that Isaiah is pointing out that makes God really great. 11 sounds like a big number, but I don't have 32 sub-points or anything like that, and we'll be working through them quite quickly. So uh, let's look at why Isaiah considers God to be great. And so he's comparing him. So he begins with the word who in there in verse 12. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So firstly, God is great because he can measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. Can anyone do that, Isaiah is asking? Can anyone gather all the waters of the earth into the hollow of his hand, into the cup of his hand? And I mean, that's quite a significant thing when you consider it. I mean, whenever I go out to the beach and look at the Pacific Ocean, there is quite a lot of water out there. But it's not just that water. When you consider all the waters of the earth, uh, it's estimated that water covers 71% of the earth's surface and that's mostly in oceans and other large water bodies, so the ones that I see at the beach. But you also have to remember that there's water in in the ground as well that we don't see and um, people often tap into that as a water source. But then there's water, of course, in the air, in vapour and precipitation. And as I was saying, if you gathered all that water together, God could cup it in the hollow of his hand not to suggest that God has a hand. We know from John 4 that God is spirit. But if God was to have a hand, he'd be able to gather it all together. He is that great and put it into the hollow of his hand. Isaiah is saying, can anyone do that? And the answer is no. God is the greatest at putting water into the hollow of his hand, at gathering water together. Secondly, uh, we see, uh, carrying on in verse 12, it says, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. God is great because he can mark off the heavens with the breadth of his hand. The breadth of his hand being from the thumb to the middle finger there, so that's the breadth of God's hand. And he's saying he could mark off the heavens with his hand. He is that great. And that isn't necessarily just the heavens that Isaiah was looking up to, uh, but of course he'd be seeing the stars and the universe, and the universe is quite big. I mean, some people say that it's continuing to expand. I'm not an astronomer, so I don't know, but it's estimated by some that it's at least 93 billion light years across. 93 billion light years across. So we could say that God's the breadth of his hand is 93 billion light years from the thumb to the middle finger. That's how great he is. He is incredibly great. No one can do that. Then thirdly, verse 12, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Can anyone gather all the dust of the earth and put it in a basket? Because God can, if he wanted to. He could put it all in a basket. Now, dust, uh, we're more familiar with, uh, some of us, than others, particularly if we dust the house. We notice uh, if you leave it a week and then you leave it another week and you leave it another week, it really does start to accumulate and you have to start uh, really getting on top of that. Otherwise, it's just really going to gather up. And there seems to be so much dust in the house at times. We have one of those vacuum cleaners that you can actually see inside at the Dyson and so I really like using it because you can see how much dust you've gathered as you've been vacuuming around the house. So I really enjoy the vacuuming. But it seems like there's so much in the house. But then you consider that there's lots of dust elsewhere as well outside the house. We uh, went out to Wombian Caves out past Mittagong and it's an unsealed road to get out there. And as soon as you go on any unsealed road you start to realise how much dust is behind you if you look at your rear view mirror and then if you want to wash your car later on. That dust, there's a lot of it out there. And 
God is saying, can anyone gather all that dust and put it in a basket? Because I can. Or, uh, my fourth one is, uh, that Isaiah has there is, or weigh the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. God is great because he can heave mountains around and put them on scales if he wanted to. I've already spoken about the great mountains that I saw out at Cairns. God could put them up and put them on a, on a balance, so a balance being there the way that they used to measure things that have certain weights and they put them on either side and balance them out. God could do that with hills and the mountains and it's estimated that uh, 24% of the earth's land mass is mountainous. So 24%, that's a quarter of the whole earth, is mountainous. God could pick all that up and put it on scales if he wanted to. Is anyone great enough to be able to challenge God and say, I can do that? No, God is greatest when it comes to that. And so we've seen that God in that verse is talking about how, uh, Isaiah's talking about how great God is compared to uh, size and things like that. Now in verse 13 we see that he's getting on to how great the mind of God is and God's character, who he is. And so fifthly we see God is great because no psychologist can understand him. There in verse 13 it says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has understood his mind? We rely on psychologists so much to help us understanding our minds and particularly if we have illnesses, we try to correct uh, our wrong, uh, the things going wrong with our minds and we often try to do a little bit of psychology on ourselves and classify ourselves as different things. We classify ourselves as introverts or extroverts and we try and work out what kind of person we are and we, and we ask people what they think of us, particularly people who have been trained in psychology. Isaiah is saying, with God, can any psychologist say, I know exactly what God is, he's an extrovert. Or I know he's an introvert. I know exactly the mind of God, I can understand it. And it's clear that no one can. God is too great for any psychologist to put up their hand and say, I understand the mind of the Lord. And then sixthly, we see God is great because he has no need of a counsellor. There in verse 13 it says, or instructed him as his counsellor. Now, we may not always be seeking professional counselling, professional help in, in trying to understand our problems, but we get counselled from a very young age by our parents. Whenever we've got issues, we go to mum or dad. For me, it was usually mum you'd go crying to. You'd be asking her for help uh, with whatever problem you'd had. But as we get older, we, we seek counsel from many people. We seek it from our friends. I mean, uh, girls seem to be a lot better at that in some ways. They seem to be always counselling one another. Uh, they, they support Telstra a lot through that uh, uh, thing at times. Probably get in trouble for saying this. But uh, yeah, they, they tend to be. And, uh, but we all do seek counsel at times, don't we? And, and that's a part of being in a, a, a marriage is that we counsel one another. We're always helping each other uh, and, and listening to one another and caring for one another. That's what a loving husband and a loving wife do. We counsel one another. We depend upon counsel from others. But does God? Does anyone counsel God? Does he need to debrief about his bad experience at work that day? No, he doesn't. No one can counsel God. He is too great to need a counsellor. And there in verse 14 we see uh, that uh, seventhly it says, 
God is great because he has no need of an advisor. Uh, We see there in verse uh, 14, up to verse 14, sorry, I'm getting carried away with my numbers here. Uh, Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who does he consult to enlighten him? He has no need of advice. He doesn't need someone to advise him about something. You may think this is similar to counselling, but uh, I think of the the show that I I really like to watch, the TV show, The West Wing, which talks about, it shows you the day-to-day goings-on behind uh, in the Oval Office with the President. And you start to realise when you watch that show, I'm not sure how close it is to reality, but uh, that the President doesn't make very many decisions on his own. He has his own staff that advise him on things, but then he has all these secretaries, all these advisers. He has one for defence, he has one for uh, economics, he has one for education, he has one for health. He has all these people who advise him on whatever issue he needs to decide and so he makes that decision not based on his own knowledge. He goes to people for advice. He consults people. Does God need anyone to consult? Does he need to consult anyone for advice about how he is to run the world? No. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? No one. And then in verse 14, my eighth point is that God is great because he has uh, no, no need of a teacher. We see that there in verse 14. Uh, he has no need of a teacher. It says, who taught him the right way? Who taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? God needs no teacher. We're so used to having teachers from a very young age. Our parents, of course, teach us early on about things. We ask them questions. We're always asking, what's this? Why does that happen? And then, of course, when we, we get older, we go to school and we hear, have teachers there and they tell us about things and then we go into high school and then to university and, if, and then if we go into the workforce, we're always getting training as well. Uh, we're being taught about new things, new technologies that are coming along. We're always needing teachers. We're always needing someone to show us uh, new knowledge and a way of understanding. But does God need anyone to tell him how to run things? Does he need to go to anyone to ask for knowledge about some new technology that's come out? Does God consult the Encyclopaedia Britannica? Does he go to the internet when he's got a question? No. No one can teach God. He is too great for that. And then my ninth point is that God is too great to have a need of a judge. We see that there in verse uh, 14 as well. uh, The second sort of part of verse 14 it says and who taught him the right way this is a teacher to teach God the right way does anyone teach God the difference between right and wrong we depend upon uh, people to tell us the difference between right and wrong when we're growing up we have our consciences as well but our parents are pretty strict at first at telling us you can do this and you can't do this and if they don't well very soon we have a run in with the police probably and they'll be telling us what we can and can't do And then if we uh, continue to do wrong, we'll end up in front of a judge and he'll be saying, yep, you really can't do that. Does God need a judge to tell him what is right and what is wrong, what he can and can't do? No, because God defines what is right and wrong. He is righteous 
and anything that is not in line with him is wrong. He is the one that's always in the right and he is the ultimate judge. The judges of the earth could never stand up and tell God that he is doing something wrong. God is the ultimate judge and one day we will all face that judge. God is too great to need a judge, to need someone to tell him the difference between right and wrong. And then, moving on, we see tenthly that God is great because in comparison to him, the nations are insignificant. We see that there in verse 15. Verse 15 says, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. And then down in verse 17 it says, Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Isaiah is trying to point out that all the nations collectively put together are nothing in the sight of God. And he uses some great illustrations there for it. Verse 15, Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. We often use that phrase, the drop in the bucket, to talk about something that's really insignificant and not really worth bothering about. Doing, we say, oh, it's just a drop in the bucket. Why should we bother? That's the expression that Isaiah uses to talk about all the nations put together, they are like a drop in the bucket. They are insignificant. Or, he says, they are regarded as dust on the scales. I used to read over that and I never really thought about it until fairly recently and thought, what does that actually mean? It means dust on the scales. It's like going to the butcher and when he puts your snags on the the scales to weigh them, to charge you for them, you say, hang on a second, I just want to blow the dust away because I don't want to pay for the dust. I don't want you to overcharge me for the dust. Or if you uh, are in the business of weighing yourself, you might want to dust them off first so that you're not ashamed as to how heavy you are because you're actually, uh, there's a false reading there because you've got some dust there so you need to take that off first. Imagine that, wiping the dust off the scales before you weighed yourself. It's just ridiculous because the dust is so insignificant. And that's what the nations are to God. They are as nothing. They're insignificant. When you put them all together, God is so much greater than them. And so we see that there in verse 17. Isaiah says, Before him all the nations are as nothing. The Hebrew word there for nothing, it's a word that can actually be translated at times as there is not. So it's non-existence. They're just like they aren't there. Or in, in, uh, further on in verse 17 it says, they're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. So we're actually going into the negatives. They're less than nothing. We think the nations are so great with all their nuclear power, with all their control of people, with all their resources, with all their wealth and we fear them at times. Put together, they are as nothing to God. God is so much greater than them. That is why God is great. And then finally, the eleventh point, is that God is great in comparison to religion and to religious people. We see that there in verse 16. It says, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Now we may think, yes, that's right, the nations are as nothing towards God in comparison to God, but religious people. You know, we know the nations are pretty wicked. Some of them are more wicked than others and we think, oh yes, that, that would make sense. But religious people, people who follow God's law, 
They're something in the eyes of God. They're worthwhile to him. They're obeying his commands. Well, Isaiah's pointing out here that the sacrifices that people make, that God had commanded, he said, you know, do these animal sacrifices. This is my command. Do them. He's saying, if you set all of Lebanon on fire, it would not be sufficient. Now, why, why is Lebanon important there? Well, Lebanon had the best wood. Now, I'm not a carpenter, so I don't know much about wood, but I believe there is high-quality wood and then there's cheaper-quality wood. Lebanon had the best wood in that day. Solomon, when he built the, the temple for the Lord, he actually sought the, the logs from Lebanon. They actually floated them downstream to him to, so that he could use the best quality wood for God's temple. And so Isaiah's saying, get the best quality wood for your kindling, for the fire, to build your altar, and not just get it from Lebanon, get all of Lebanon's wood, and then all the animals in the forest, it says, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings, get all the animals that are there, and the, that, that forest, they would have been teeming with animals. If you set it all on fire, had some big bushfire, and made it as a sacrifice to God, it would not be sufficient in comparison to him. He is too great to have that to be sufficient before him. And this is something that we've got to wake up to. If we ever think that obeying God's commands, like these Israelites obeyed the, the animal sacrifices, they did these sacrifices, they obeyed God's commands, that we think that we're becoming something in God's eyes. We may know the Ten Commandments and we may try and keep them as much as possible and we think we, we do fail at times but surely we get a 50% mark or maybe a bit more and that's what will get us into heaven. That's what will make us acceptable before God. This is a common thinking of people. I mean, with the World Youth Day, we went in, a couple of us, to talk to the Catholics about their faith and... It, you know, you, you get to the crunch and they say you, it's not good enough to just believe in God. You've got to do good works as well. You want to mix those in. But that's not true. There is one sacrifice that is sufficient before God, but it's not a sacrifice we make. It's a sacrifice God had to make when he sent his son to die on the cross. None of the sacrifices in the Old Testament ever took away sin. They simply pointed to that one ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we can never think that anything we can do, even if we set all of Lebanon on fire, even if we kept, you know, we, we kept as many of the commandments as we could and, and everyone said, oh yes, you're a pretty good person, it would never be sufficient. We only, the only sufficient thing before God that we can have is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the payment for our sin. We can't mix anything else in with it. And I hope everyone this morning has realised that. That we're not depending upon some little sacrifice. Romans 12 talks about our, our spiritual sacrifice this, these days is about our lives and the good works that we do. That is our spiritual sacrifice to God. But it's a sacrifice that we make not because it earns our salvation, but it's out of response to what he has done. We should never depend upon our good works to get us into heaven. 
because it's not sufficient. God is too great for anything we do to be significant in his eyes. Now, speaking of the nations as being worthless and less than nothing, it makes us sound like we're not significant at all, but that's going too far. God sees us as significant because we're made in his image and because he chose to send his son to die for us. That sacrifice was made to us, but it wasn't because of anything we did. And that's where that important doctrine of unconditional election comes in. This is a reformed church, so I can use some reformed terms at times. Unconditional election means that God elected us to be significant in his eyes unconditionally. There was nothing that forced his hand to elect us to belong to him. And so we've always got to be remembering that nothing we can do as religious people is significant in his eyes. So they're the 11 great, uh, the things that make God so great that we can see God is greater than everyone else. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. He says, okay, so you guys do believe in God and you do believe he is great, but he warns them, don't minimise God's greatness. Don't fall into the temptation of doing that. And how could you do that? He carries on in verse 18. He says, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Isaiah is tackling the greatest temptation of that day was to get another religion alongside your religion of God, to bring in another idol or another God to worship. And he's saying, Remember how great God is and don't compare him to an idol. And Isaiah proceeds to mock idols. He says in verse 19, As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Isaiah is saying, Look at idols. Look at what they are. You notice that a craftsman casts it. A man makes it. And then a goldsmith is the one who puts gold on it and makes it really valuable. And then fashion silver chains for it. Now the silver chains, they may be ornaments that they used to put around the idols, so you put a silver chain around it. But often they made silver chains to chain the thing down so that no one would pinch it. So you weren't even able to pray to these idols, please idol, don't let yourself be stolen, I want to keep you around. No, you had to take the, the active role in chaining the thing down so that no one would steal it. And then we see in verse 20, a, a man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. And then he says, he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Now, the translation of that word verse uh, from the Hebrew about the idol toppling, uh, we may not be too sure what it means. It may be uh, setting the, the foundations up for the idol, but it could mean something else. But uh, it probably does mean so that it wouldn't fall over. The NIV probably has it right here. And so that's just saying how silly the idol is. It might fall over if a strong wind comes along. So you've got to make sure you, you put a good foundation on it. Isaiah is just making fun of the possibility of worshipping something that is just so, so pathetic in comparison to the greatness of God, the great God that we can worship. Now you may think, well, I don't really have a problem with idols. I don't have any in my house and I'm not tempted to, to bow down to any idols. 
But I think we've got to recognise that this is becoming more and more of a problem, that idols are becoming something that are a part of our culture. And we, there's some parts of the city where you walk down the street and you see idols for sale in shops, you see Buddhas available to, to buy and then if you go into some cafe streets, you know, every second cafe will have idols set up you know, as part of the decoration in there. They aren't necessarily bowing down to them but they're still present there and it's becoming a part of our culture. And then we even uh, we can come into contact with it with the people that we deal with. My wife Jill, she works at a hospital, and one of the people at the hospital, her boss, was leaving, and she gave a present to Jill as a, a little Buddha. And she didn't just give it as you know decoration. She said it's actually for luck. Now this is a person who's uh, been to university. You think is a very intelligent person, worked her way up into leadership within the hospital. And here she is saying, this inanimate object that someone has made has luck, has good fortune, has power over your life and it would be really good if you kept it in your possession. That's ridiculous. But it's becoming something that we have to recognise is present and we have to resist the temptation to ever think that we could have anything in our possession that could bring us good luck. The only person is God that can, has control over our lives. We have to go to him and to nothing else. And to, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I can understand going to people for advice and going to people to try and change things. But to an inanimate object, it's just ridiculous. But we have to recognise that it is a threat and it is a temptation for many people. And we have to resist that temptation. But then also we may think, oh, well, I don't really have a problem with that, but we often have a problem with spiritual idols, don't we? Things that we don't consider idols because we don't see them as an object that we, we bow down to and worship, but we worship them by the way that we spend our time and the way that we spend our money. It's a very good way to identify any idols that might be in your life is the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your money. I mean, you can, if you, if you just consider... The, the way that your money, if someone was to look at how much, uh, to see everything, that, every dollar that you spend, would they recognise that God is the priority in your life? Would they recognise that? I listen to talkback radio that I, I get from America, Christian talkback radio, and someone once rang up, they were talking about social giving and giving to the poor, and someone rang up and said she was a financial advisor and she had worked for many years within the industry and she worked with multi-million dollar clients, so really rich people. And she said, never in all her years had she seen any giving from any of these clients to any kind of charity. And she said it really reveals where people's hearts are. Do you, if, if someone was to see all the way that you spend your money, would they recognise that God is a priority or would they think that something else might be the number one priority in your life? I mean, we, we often have different idols. It can be idols in, we get sucked into things like food. We're always thinking about where our next meal is coming from. We're always thinking about uh, food and, and I'm not saying that food isn't something that we need. We need it to sustain ourselves, but it can become a priority in our life and maybe the number one priority. Or it can be to do with movies and things like that. We, we're all consumed by buying DVDs. I love movies, but they shouldn't be the main focus of our life. 
And then when we spend our time, that is a good revealer of our idols. If someone was to come round and visit, would they find you uh, in your spare time? Would they more likely find you reading uh, a theological book or the Bible? Or would they find you just frivolously entertaining yourself all the time? Or the way that you spend your Sundays? If you're not always regular at church, why is that? You may have very good reasons for not being here. But it may reveal your idol. I mean, some people, they don't go to church anymore because of sports games. They, they, they have the, the sports game that they really love or their children get involved with stops them going to church on Sunday. That's a very good revealer of an idol. That something else has taken the priority over God. We have to be so careful about putting anything up there with God because Isaiah is clear that God is so great that nothing is worth worshipping in comparison to him and we should never be tempted to do so. Let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, we recognise that you are indeed a great God. You are the greatest God that nothing compares to you. But so often we don't want to depend upon you, we want to depend upon other people, we want to depend upon ourselves and we want to depend upon uh, objects that we love for uh, pleasure rather than go to you. We pray that we'll continue to follow after you, that we will realise that the only sacrifice that is pleasing in your eyes that can earn salvation is your Son. We pray that everyone here this morning has trusted in him and we pray that we will always be vigilant in identifying possible idols in our lives and putting them to death and having you as the greatest God. We pray this in your Son's name.